everybody. I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. Welcome in, listeners. <laughs> Welcome in. There's not a firefight going on on my end. It's just fireworks. <laughs> oh, I mean, it could be a firefight. It, it could. could be. I mean, we used to... <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but me and my fucking brother used to watch bottle caps at each other. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> we watched Jackass way too young, okay? Don't, don't give your kids stupid ideas. <laughs> Yes, we are recording this right before 4th of July is about to hit, so I think, well, both of us have had neighbors shooting off fireworks, but it sounds like Katie's having some serious noise interference from the fireworks. Oh my god. In the wee hours of the morning, so we'll see how this yes. goes. Yes, it's only 10pm right now, yeah. so the mortar rounds aren't scheduled to go off for about... <laughs> four five-ish hours i don't know oh who's doing that God. i don't know who you are and I, I i do have the specific skills to possibly find you but i am too fucking lazy so count your lucky stars because <laughs> the thunder that you send over my house at 3 a.m for the last like four days i'm over it <laughs> yeah salem is over it too <laughs> yes poor salem is asleep still next to me she gently raises her head when she hears fireworks like she's not like a scaredy cat when it comes to fireworks in fact she actually kind of likes them she's weird um <laughs> but right now she's just looking at me like mom this has been happening for for like four days i'm tired mom i'm like i don't know i'm tired too baby i'm sorry <laughs> uh yeah soon it'll be over Soon we will be past all the fireworks. <laughs> you know, I would like to say soon, but I live in a party city, so true, it might true. It might be a little bit longer for me. Just a heads yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, Re got the wonderful side of the curse today from the Whispers Estate. Oh my gosh! Yeah, we're recording this episode the same day we were just recording the last episode. And as we discussed in last episode's banter of the Curse of the Whispers Estate coming to haunt us recording, it continues because, thank goodness, we tested the audio before officially starting to record this episode because we're trying to learn from previous issues. <laughs> because for some reason, well, first off, my computer, or I should say the software, not even my computer, the software decided that it was not going to have the audio coming from my microphone. I don't know where it was trying to get the, the audio from, I assume, from my camera, like it did to Katie a couple weeks ago. So thankfully we prevented that issue. But then we tested the audio again, and the second time it completely got rid of Katie and just replicated my voice so we had two reads and no Katie. <laughs> Which won't make for a very interesting episode. No, no, it won't. It'll make for, like, one of the first episodes that we did where that actually happened. <laughs> oh and that was, God. like, never again. Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> I just remember we got all the way through it. I'm like, your line is very quiet. I'm like, oh my god, are you fucking kidding me? It's not been recording you this whole fucking time. I hate it here. I'm done. <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that. That was definitely a, a, cha- a turning point <laughs> in the, the learning of podcast recording. It went from being a stress-free environment, we were having fun, to now I'm like, is everything doing what it's supposed to be doing? <laughs> and the one time, the one time I'm like, okay, we're good, we're good, we're, we're good to start, we're okay, is the one time that I went, uh-uh-uh, you didn't say the magic word, uh-uh-uh. <laughs> oh, man. <sighs> Yes, hopefully the curse will be lifted and we can make it through the rest of the episode without any major problems. <laughs> I, I guess we'll see how long we need to this cleanse our houses. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> oh man. All right, listeners. Well, we will <laughs> shift gears into our disclaimer here and then move on with the episode. So we will see you on the other side. While we understand that some individuals listen for the entertainment aspect of true crime, it's important to remember that these are real people with families and friends who may still be suffering from their loss. These stories are not meant to open old wounds or cause further emotional damage to those involved. We remind you to please be respectful, do not dox or contact those involved with cases. While paranormal occurrences and urban legends may be sources of tourism, please be considerate if you visit one of these locations. Do not engage in trespassing and be sure to ask for permission if you plan on recording. Be aware of your surroundings and travel safely. The cases discussed in this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Well, welcome back, listeners. <laughs> Luckily, today we don't have any trigger warnings, so this will be one of my lighter cases. But today, uh, well, I was going to say to today is World UFO Day, but at this point now, technically, it is yesterday it was World UFO Day because we have passed midnight. <laughs> But that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the 2nd of July? Yep. So World UFO Day. Actually, there's two different dates. So I guess some people celebrate it on one day and some people on the other day. I don't know why we can't decide on one, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because we need one for the greys and then we need one for the lizard men, okay? Exactly. (laughs) You got to separate the two. They don't like each other. (laughs) Uh, but World UFO Day is celebrated on June 24th and July 2nd. And the reasoning behind those two dates is June 24th recognizes the first widely reported UFO sighting in 1947 by aviator Kenneth Arnold. And July 2nd recognizes the incident in Roswell, New Mexico, also in 1947. Which we have not covered yet, but... I will one <laughs> But in any case, I originally was researching a UFO sighting case for World UFO Day. 
but there wasn't quite enough info on it for a whole episode, so instead, I cooked up today's case, but it is also UFO-related. So stick around <laughs> if you celebrate World UFO Day, and even if you don't, we still hope you'll stick around for this episode. I think that the skeptics should find this case particularly interesting as well, so there'll be a little something for everybody. <laughs> as I'm sitting here, I'm like, oh, we got UFOs today, yay. <laughs> we haven't had UFOs in a hot minute, have we? No, it's been a while. It has been a while, yeah. Yeah, so, jeez, I should have looked up the, here, let me look up. Broadcast our last UFO case here. Shout it out since it's World <laughs> UFO Day. <laughs> I don't well, I think remember our last off the top of my head which, one, which number of. I think our last one was the um, Las Vegas UFO sighting. Yeah. The Christmas Day one. Sounds right. Here we go. Renry, go find it. <laughs> so to celebrate World UFO Day, if you have not already, do be sure to also go back and listen to episode 55, our 2022 Las Vegas UFO sighting near Christmas episode. Another great UFO related case. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get into the the meat and cheese of today's discussion. <laughs> I like how that's a thing now. <laughs> I love cheese, so it must be a thing now. <laughs> I also love cheese, and I am lactose intolerant, so. Yeah, I'm partially lactose intolerant, so. <laughs> it's a love-hate relationship. <laughs> Mostly love, but a lot of hate later. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> case i wanted to really quick just hit a few definitions um because i will be using this terminology frequently throughout the episode and i will i do want to apologize in advance if i use the wrong term in the wrong place i did my best <laughs> but just to clarify let's cover the differences between meteoroids meteors and meteorites <laughs> okay so and this is the uh uh, what's what's the word? I can't think of the, the phrase. This, this is basically my common man's definition where I took the, the fancy definitions and I, I put them into my own words. So they're not <laughs> fancy dictionary definitions. This is oh, just uh, paraphrasing. Me. You're paraphrasing. Yeah, me paraphrasing some Google definitions, but check my references. I do have the article in there that I pulled these definitions from. <laughs> well, I remember a meteorite is like, isn't it like small and coming into the like atmosphere and then like a meteor is like still in space and then a meteor ride is something bigger i don't know <laughs> i i've taken astronomy classes okay <laughs> i'm an embarrassment to my family the astronaut side of my family <laughs> yeah you're really close so a meteoroid is the hunk of rock that is flying through space and then it turns into a meteor when it's the, the shooting star that forms when the hunk of rock is burning up in the Earth's atmosphere as it's going through the atmosphere. And then the meteorite is the remnants of the meteor after it makes it through the atmosphere and then makes contact with Earth on impact. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So <laughs> they all sound very similar. So hopefully I won't be misspeaking. Misspeaking. Hopefully I won't be saying the wrong words in the wrong places, but I tried. So, like I said, apologies in advance if I say the wrong thing in the wrong place, but I'm going to try to use the correct terms. 
All right. So let's get into our case for the day. On January 9th of 2014, a two-foot-long meteoroid entered Earth's atmosphere, flew past Portugal, traveling over 100,000 miles per hour, and then exploded over the Pacific Ocean at about 3.05 a.m. local time. While there are about 10,000 professional astronomers on Earth and plenty of amateur astronomers, it is still practically impossible to monitor all of the sky at any given time, and most telescopes are not sensitive enough to detect meteorites. With this in consideration, and due to the time and location of this event, it was probably not sighted by any astronomers. However, the meteor was detected by the U.S. government, whose military equipment has a heightened sensitivity to detect potential military or intelligence threats in the skies. A seismometer station on Manus Island, Papua New Guinea, also collected data indicating a meteorite event nearby. It was then entered into the NEO, Earth Close Approaches database, and named CNEOS 2014-01-08, with NEO standing for Near Earth Object, With this, and this database specifically details detections of objects that move close to the Earth, as the name implies, in this case, actually entering the Earth's atmosphere. And I did want to make a quick note before we move on that while military-detected meteors are entered into this database, the database itself is run by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and the California Institute of Technology. Okay. So, we have this meteor in 2014 which no one really seemed to pay that much attention to until Dr. Avi Loeb and then graduate student Amir Siraj released a paper on it in 2019. Now this paper was not published at the time since it did not pass through the peer review process due to concerns regarding inability to double check the data. The fine details of the trajectory, speed, and altitude of the meteor were considered classified information since it was detected by uh, the U.S. military. And this is not because the meteor was an obvious UFO, but rather because providing these specifics, including probability of error, would reveal too much information about U.S. military capabilities and potential weaknesses to monitor objects traveling through the atmosphere. That's a scary thought. (laughs) Yeah, I was like... Ooh, I never thought about that before. <laughs> That's something that does not cross your mind when you think of our military. You're like, yeah, pew pews, they're out. <laughs> pew pews, <laughs> pew pews, they're they're raising hell. Yeah, uh, I'm like, uh, <laughs> what can you do with trajectories in the air? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> now, Doctor Loeb and Siraj hypothesized that this meteoroid was interstellar and just meaning that it's coming from outside of our solar system because the velocity it was traveling at was much faster than anything in our solar system travels in fact it was traveling faster than 95 percent of the stars closest to us so this speed was shocking (laughs) 
even if it wasn't a uh, a UFO, which it sounds like it has to fucking be, because I don't <laughs> think we'd still be here if it wasn't. <laughs> um, that's going really fucking fast, man. Oh yeah, <sighs> yeah, it's, it's going mighty fast. <laughs> Now Sonic fast. It was Sonic. <laughs> Sonic fast. Sonic fast. <laughs> now this speed could not easily be explained. And so it was definitely being questioned, how could this get so much momentum? And another strange feature of this meteor is that it broke up in the lower atmosphere rather than the upper atmosphere. Meaning yeah, it was made of a right. material that had to be significantly stronger than more common space rocks and stronger than steel even to be able to make it that far into the atmosphere before it broke apart. Yeah, that's not right. I mean, <laughs> if you think about how things re-enter with space stuff and how, I don't even think our ships break apart like that. It break it breaks apart on exiting. Like it starts to fall apart as it like goes out of the atmosphere. When it comes back in, it's kind of it's rough ride. Maybe some stuff breaks off, but like even at the same time, like that's a high grade steel that they use for yeah, these I missions. Mean, yeah, they use I don't know what they use, but they, they use I'll Google it real quick. I got you. <laughs> Whatever they use, I mean they use it for the reason that it makes it through the atmosphere safely, so you can safely transport your your samples and, and potentially people. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they're not using just any old metal to get that through the atmosphere for sure. So they use aluminum al alloys or alloy. Okay. So are widely used in any part of the structure, but graphite epoxy composites materials are also increasingly utilized for both the primary and secondary structures to take advantage of superior mechanism properties. Hmm. And before anyone comes for me in the freaking comments, yes, I said aluminium <laughs> because I cannot say the other word. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, there you have it. That's what we use for, to make spaceships. <laughs> According to Google's first thing pop up yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine if most meteors are breaking up in the upper atmosphere and this one's also traveling really fast it, it was it was an odd case so it definitely raised some eyebrows and made dr Loeb wonder if this was a meteoroid at all or rather something else entirely but before we get more into dr Loeb. I did want to briefly explain why an interstellar meteorite entering Earth's atmosphere would be such a big deal. As far as we know, we have never collected material from outside of our solar system. This is despite having collected over 70,000 meteorites and spent the last 66 years exploring space. Specimens collected have been limited to objects that have originated somewhere within our solar system. Now, we have at least sighted a couple of objects, uh, including a comet named 2I or Borisov. I apologize if I butchered that. I believe it's Russian. And a strangely shaped meteorite, Aumuamua, <laughs> which passed us by in recent years, 
and both of these were determined to be interstellar in origin, but neither of these entered Earth's atmosphere or could be reached in a manner where we could take any sort of samples from them. Mm-hmm. Thus, if it is true that this meteorite was interstellar and its remains are on Earth and can be retrieved, there's potentially a treasure trove of information there that could be gathered from those remains in terms of what space rock from another solar system is composed of, how old it is, or if it really is space rock at all. <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm over here going, oh God, it's the start of a creep show, Stephen King's one, where he touches the meteor and it starts growing like green fuzz everywhere. And then my brain went, no, no, this is invasion of the body snatchers. Or, or we have venom somewhere on the planet, and I would like oh, to meet venom. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> Not well, I, don't know, I don't know if I like that, but I am a fan of the venom movie, so yes. <laughs> I'd like to meet venom, not carnage. Carnage. Can, Good point. Good yeah. point. <laughs> I, I would wave at a very far distance at carnage, where he could not see me, and then yeah. I would disappear. <laughs> Now, there was still significant doubt from the scientific community that this meteoroid was interstellar in origin. Some scientists even pointed out that military equipment is designed to detect missiles and nukes, not meteors, so who's to say that it could accurately measure a meteor? And Steve Desch, an astrophysics professor at Arizona State University, specifically addressed that satellite is good at detecting left-to-right motion, but it's generally not very good at detecting forwards or backwards motion, as in, like, if it's traveling towards you or away from you. So it makes velocity estimates highly prone to error. He also called this data, quote-unquote, sanitized due to the classified information problem, since the error bars were not made public, so it was difficult to know how accurate these measurements were when that, that statistic, statistical information is not being made public. Mm-hmm. A few scientists, such as Brown and Borovichka, argued that it is more likely the, that the measurements were significantly off and that this was a more common meteor from within our solar system traveling at a much lower velocity. Other scientists, such as Minakshi Wadua, a planetary scientist at Arizona State University, were optimistic that the meteorite could be interstellar, but that the data did need to be peer-reviewed. So there was a lot of mixed responses coming from the rest of the scientific community around this. However, in March of 2022, so not that long ago, a little over a year ago, NASA received a letter with the blue Department of Defense seal on it, signed by the U.S. Space Force Lieutenant General. And this letter stated that Dr. Joel Moser, the chief scientist of Space Operations Command in the U.S. Space Command, had reviewed data collected by the military equipment and agreed that based on their classified data that this meteorite was likely interstellar in origin. And you can check out my references for a link to a copy of this letter as it has been posted publicly online already. Now, back to Dr. Loam. While the meteorite predated Aumuamua, its discovery and the paper about it came after all the hype surrounding Aumuamua, including some other controversial comments by Dr. Loeb. Dr. Loeb published the book Extraterrestrial about Aumuamua 
and how he believed it could possibly be not a meteorite at all, but actually a UFO in disguise. He wondered if this case could be something similar, some sort of extraterrestrial technology disguised as a meteorite. After all, if there is life out in space besides us, who's to say it is safe to live out in the open? Extraterrestrial life could be living and hiding and thus would have their technology camouflaged to blend in with the surrounding spacescape. So here I would like to quote Dr. Loeb from 2022. Quote, my point is if a cave dweller were to find a cell phone, the cave dweller would argue the cell phone is a rock of a type that we've never seen before. And the only way to find out is to press some buttons on the cell phone and realize that it records your voice, it records your image. Then it will be clear that it is not rock. End quote. I mean, you can make the argument, too, that we're all carbon-based life forms. And this is going to sound like super tin hat crazy. But <laughs> <laughs> this is literally brought forward to me by one of my anatomy teachers. We're all carbon-based life forms. And one of the biggest carbon-based like things on the planets, rock. Oh my gosh, yes. I've, I don't know why I've heard that before, but that's, that's something I've heard before. And it just like blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, I'm like... Uh. Rock might be staring right back at you. You don't know, <laughs> right? And I think, and again, it does sound very tin hatty, but <laughs> it, it sounds tin hatty. But... but seriously, though, I mean, I think there's a point there of you know, we have the science fiction, you know, little green people in mind a lot of the time when we're thinking of aliens. It might but, be a rock person. It might yeah, be. Yeah, we don't know. Cord, cord. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if there is extraterrestrial life out there, we don't know what they look like. We don't know what they sound like. We don't know what their technology looks like or sounds like. It's like we, we don't have any clue. They could be nothing like us. And I think it is natural to imagine something to be like you because that's your reality. That's your understanding. But that doesn't mean what's out there is going to be like this if there is something out there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think we get in our heads a little bit and it's that more of like, I wouldn't say narcissistic, but it's the egotisticalism as humans to be like, oh, the monster's going to look like me. And I think that stems from the fact of like Uncanny Valley of there was something out there years and years and years and years ago that looked like us, but wasn't us. Yeah. There's definitely some fucking cryptids <laughs> still that we will talk about at some point that follow that line of thought. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I mean, Absolutely. I, I feel that. I feel that. Yeah. So, I mean, it could have even been like something like there's aliens coming to visit us, blah, 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 blah. They look like us, but they're not us. Maybe they were violent. Maybe they tried to help. Maybe they were like, oh, we're just here to test the waters and check out our ant farm and be gone. Bye. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, that's another thought that's been proposed before, is if these are beings who are way more technologically advanced than we are, you know, maybe they can change how their appearance is to look more like us so that we don't all freak out and panic and go, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, it's a bunch of monsters, and instead they're just like, oh, they look like us, so they can't be that bad, and, you know, so, <laughs> it's one of those things, so yeah, I definitely... <laughs> Sorry, it was dealt with. It can't be that bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, 
Yes. In any case, it definitely all comes back to this point of, you know, we don't know what we're looking for when it comes to extraterrestrial life. It could be, like, use your imagination. It could be any number of things. And so the point I think Dr. Loeb is trying to make here is we shouldn't be making assumptions of what extraterrestrial life or the technology might look like because it could look in in this case you know it could look like something that's quite common you know space rock that's floating around in space (laughs) but really it's not space rock and so that's what he's trying to get at here (laughs) so going off that line of thought (laughs) uh dr loeb started the galileo project since then at harvard and that has earned him the nickname the alien hunter of harvard (laughs) (laughs) so let's talk a little bit about the galileo project before we go back to our story about the meteor because uh the galileo project is all kind of intertwined with that so the galileo project started in july 2021 as quote a center dedicated to unearthing evidence that objects made by extraterrestrial life are in our solar system end quote And that is from E.O. Y. Gilman in 2022. The Galileo Project specifically notes that it is searching for evidence of extraterrestrial technological civilizations, which they refer to as ETCs, and hopes to make this kind of research mainstream, respected, and accepted in the scientific community. It is founded with the belief that it is wrong to assume alien technology uses radio signals, which is one of the primary ways we have been searching for extraterrestrial life. And instead, we should search for extraterrestrial technology in whatever form it may come to prove their existence. So, it is searching for this technology in our atmosphere through Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, which is another word for ufo and also by studying interstellar objects isos like the meteoroid we have been discussing the galileo project plans to deploy a network of high resolution telescopes with supporting camera computer and software systems as well as additional equipment to try to collect data in multiple spectrums including visible infrared radio and sound However, at least part of the scientific community does not feel that the Galileo project is as rigorous as the SETI Institute, which has come up in the podcast before, uh, which the SETI Institute has made it clear that it is founded in accepted scientific research principles and welcoming of expertise. And there's some people that don't feel the same about the Galileo project uh, and are very critical of it. But... Dr. Loeb has not let the criticism belittle him or his project. In fact, the Galileo project was named thus symbolically as Galileo in the 16th century, theorized the earth revolved around the sun and faced massive ridicule in his time or during his time for this hypothesis. Since at the time we believed that uh, everything revolved around the earth. So what does the Galileo project have to do with the meteor we're talking about? So, uh, like I said, the Galileo Project is looking at both, uh, basically, UFOs in our atmosphere, but also looking at any sort of interstellar objects that have come from outside of our solar system uh, with the thought of, regardless if that 
uh, again, under the assumption here that we're talking about extraterrestrial technology, regardless if it is intentionally sent into our solar system or unintentionally, because there are cases where we have unintentionally sent uh, debris outside of our solar system when, uh, you know, our equipment has collided with meteors or other sorts of material in space. So that's definitely a possibility as well was one of the things that was noted is that if there's extraterrestrial technology out there, there's nothing to say that, you know, it may accidentally get diverted into our solar system, even if they don't want it to be. Mm-hmm. So, again, they're also considering if something has come from outside of our solar system, that could be natural or that could be something unnatural. So let's take a look at it. And the idea is regardless of if it's natural or unnatural, it's still useful information and we're still learning more about the surrounding galaxies around us and how everything works. So the meteorite that we discussed at the top of the episode was nicknamed IM1, which stands for Interstellar Meteorite 1. <laughs> Sounds kind of like a robot now that I think about it. <laughs> like, I, I don't like the IM1. <laughs> like, nope. No, you ain't. Yeah, no, you awesome. fucking ain't. <laughs> a little culty sounding, too. <laughs> According to Dr. Loeb's calculations, the meteorite was located about 52 miles from Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. So on June 14th of 2023, Dr. Loeb and his team of scientists and support staff boarded the Silver Star and traveled to their designated search area, spanning about 40 square miles to look for evidence of this meteorite. So that brings us to the question of how were they going to collect a meteorite or something else entirely that lie one mile under the surface of the Pacific Ocean? Now, meteoroids generally are largely composed of magnetic metal, usually iron, and if Dr. Loeb's hope that this could actually be some sort of a UFO remnant or extraterrestrial technology was true, it was suspected that it could also possibly be composed of magnetic metals. So in either case, again, whether it's natural or unnatural, the hope was it could be attracted by a magnet. And in the case that it was not magnetic, they could use a very fine net to try to collect the samples from the seafloor if need be. However, they first wanted to try to use a special gadget that Dr. Loeb invented, which they nicknamed the Interstellar Hook. (laughs) Katie's making a face over there, so I gotta wait. I'm trying to process everything, because you're like... One mile under the Pacific Ocean. I'm like, do they know where that is? Because that is like a fucking needle in a haystack, man. Or are we just going to go hoping for the best with a magnet across the bottom being like, do, 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 do. Oh, nope, that's a piece of a ship. Never mind. That's ours. <laughs> yeah, so they did do a lot of calculations with the data that they did have available to them. And that's how they narrowed it down into this 40 square mile area. Of this is the predicted trajectory of where we think the meteorite went. So let's see if we can find anything. It's still huge. (laughs) That is still huge. I can't imagine having to set up a search pattern for that. And like your best search patterns that you can do underwater are spirals, which we'll get into that in my whole thing because there are five, four or five different search, search patterns that you can do on like a crime scene or in investigation. But spirals are typically ones that are used underwater. So it's like, 
either you got to do that or you got to do like this quadrant layout where you're going up and down, up and down, and then you're double crossing your areas. That's going to take forever. That's going to take ages. <laughs> yeah, as far as I could tell uh, when I was looking through these sources, it seems like uh, because the tool they're using is just kind of getting dragged in a straight line of the path of the boat. It seemed like they were, from what I could tell, just making straight transects and just going one after the other, just going across. I don't know mm -hmm. if they crossed back to make sure they, they covered all the area, uh, but it did seem like they were they're basically doing some sort of transect where they're just making passes day after day. And I mean, it sounded like yeah. the whole day they're just doing this, you know, boat in their straight line and then next day they go to the next one that's what it seemed like okay because the way that i think of it is kind of like a microscope scope slide like when you when we look at stuff like under a microscope like let's take seminal fluid for example because this is probably the most useful one you have your slide like cover and that's where you're usually looking but you're going to want to start at like the very corner of it and just go up and down up yeah and down. you gotta make sure that you're overlapping so you get all that space covered and then you gotta go side to side side to side to make sure that there's nothing there yes yeah so i don't know that they did the the cross <laughs> track i guess the side to side after the up and down it, but, it's <laughs> tedious work i get it and as a blind bitch i know that you're not gonna see everything <laughs> That's why you got to double check. Yeah. Um, and part of it may be a budget issue. I don't have the number handy. I want to say it was $1.5 million to fund this trip. And it, I don't know how many days it lasted, but it was quite a few days. And so, I mean, this was expensive. <laughs> so it might have just been like, we're going to do the best we can do. And we're going to hope for the best. <laughs> But you do bring up a really valid point that a lot of the rest of the scientific community was bringing up of, of basically like, okay, great, you did your calculations, you think this is where it is, but you're still looking for a needle in a haystack. You're mm -hmm. still hoping, because keep in mind too, this uh, meteor crashed into the ocean in 2014. They're now looking for it in 2023. <laughs> and so that it was It might not even be there anymore. Exactly. It might not even be there. We just wasted a million dollars for this? <laughs> so this is why a lot of the scientific community was, was very much criticizing his team of, like, why are you even bothering? It's prob like, and the thing is, too, is when we're talking meteorites, you might get lucky and get a hunk of rock, but a lot of the time we're not talking about hunks of rock. We're talking about tiny, tiny, tiny little pieces. A and so, <laughs> yeah. So again, it's like we're already talking about the needle in the haystack. Like, just magnify that even more <laughs> to now tiny, tiny particles in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, and if we're talking about the velocity that it was going when it was coming through, being like super fucking fast too like as that's breaking up and like it might be losing a little bit of speed but that's still like a freaking bullet going into the water it's just gone who's oh, to say yeah. that it didn't like go a couple feet beyond to where the magnet isn't able to reach it or it's completely submerged in whatever is down there it could be coral it could be sand exactly yeah so they <laughs> 
they definitely heard an earful from the scientific community <laughs> about basically how a lot of people were like, you are wasting your time and, and the, all these people, because this was privately funded, so like you're wasting all these people's money and your time going to look for this thing you're not going to find. A lot of people kind of have that mindset. <laughs> well, I mean, if it's privately funded, like, like sad day for you, buddy. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I don't know why you're funding this, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. You're the one who who footed the bill. Now you gotta deal with the consequences. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get back to our interstellar hook here. <laughs> so the interstellar hook was a contraption, uh, like I was saying, with a a giant magnet that could slide along the seafloor like a sled, and then just pick up any sort of magnetic materials on the surface that could hook onto the magnet so they're they were dragging this magnet around basically <laughs> now let's discuss a little bit more like we were saying you know we're generally not expecting to find big hunks of rock we're generally looking for something significantly smaller so what kind of remnants did dr Loeb and his team hope to find what would the remains of something metallic that broke up in our atmosphere look like what they were looking for was something called a spherule. And to describe what this is, I do have a quote from Zaria Gorvet from 2023. Quote, these tiny spheres of metal or glass, often roughly one millimeter across, are formed in the incandescent blaze as meteorites or asteroids explode and have been found at impact sites all over the world. End quote. So this is what they're looking for. These tiny 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 little balls basically of either metal or glass that have formed when these larger objects just exploded <laughs> as they came into our atmosphere that's what they're looking for and so as they were pulling this magnet across the ocean floor the first thing they pulled from the ocean is like katie was saying Ocean wires and hunks of metal that were all man-made in origin, either from boats that have wrecked or other sorts of man-made trash or remnants from wars that have ended up at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Now, they did come across some sphere rules, but at first, these were simply sphere rules that originated from Earth because these also come from exhaust pipes breaks welding and volcanoes so there's also terrestrial sources of spherules and the way they can tell between the terrestrial ones and the ones that are from space is they have a different composition and so that allows them to be traced to did they come from earth or did they come from elsewhere <laughs> <laughs> now spherules from space can be recognized by the presence of nickel a certain type of iron oxide and even specific isotopes. So that's generally what they're looking for if they're trying to determine that this came from space and not from the Earth. But finally, they struck gold. Metaphorically, of course. During the search, they were able to obtain 50 spherules from the estimated path of travel that IM-1 originated from space. Now, they did... Um, analyze or did a preliminary scan i should say on the ship so they had limited equipment of course available to them on the ship but they did do a preliminary preliminary scan just to verify again that these are not terrestrial 
And these ones had a majority composition of iron with about 10% magnesium and a small fraction of titanium. Now, this likely indicates an interstellar origin uh, because, well, for one, that's definitely not anything that they would expect to find coming from the Earth. But two, that is not, at the same time, the kind of composition we would see in something from our solar system. So it definitely seems like it came from way out there and not from anywhere near the Earth. And they did also uh, have control samples as well, just to because another uh, argument that was made by the scientific community is the Earth is pummeled by tons of meteors every year, most of which we do not detect and do not know about. How do you know this is the one you're looking for and not just some other random meteorite that ended up on the bottom of the ocean? And so he uh, did have his team... Uh, take samples from areas outside of the search area uh, to see if they were also finding these spherules there. And very few, if any, were found in the control samples taken from outside of the estimated path of travel for IM-1. So it definitely seemed like these positive samples they were getting in the path of travel are the real deal. They're what they're looking for. <laughs> Good on them. They found the needle in the haystack. They did. So <laughs> after all of this, <laughs> a lot of criticism and a lot of people saying you're wasting your time and money, they they found the needle in the haystack. I'm <laughs> eating my words. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, so we're talking pretty recent history here. I believe it was just... I don't have it up in front of me. It was four or five days ago. I guess now that we're in past midnight, now it'd be five or six days ago. <laughs> oh, this that is they uh, finished this expedition. So this is really recent. <laughs> and so as of right now, when we're recording, they the last I was able to find online regarding where they're at in their expedition is they are taking the samples back to Harvard University to do a more refined testing on them possibly including radioisotope dating and other information that could potentially indicate the distance and direction of the source star that this came from to try to figure out where did it come from if it's outside of our solar system. And additionally, they also hope to sift out smaller spherules from some of the magnetic dust they collected to provide more of a complete picture of the meteorite's trajectory and where exactly the impact with the ocean occurred to kind of map that whole <laughs> situation out, get some better data. Understandable. Yeah. <laughs> so this is an evolving case. Um, we don't have the answer yet. If Dr. Loeb's hopes are true that this is <laughs> extraterrestrial technology and not just more space rock, we don't know. <laughs> But I am sure that Dr. Loeb and the Galileo Project will make their results public after they've had time to review and analyze their data from their expedition into the Pacific, because that is one of the, I don't know if mission is the right word, but that was one of the points that the Galileo Project did uh, make known on their website, is that they are here to put out this knowledge, to share this knowledge with the world. They're not trying to necessarily profit off of it or anything they're you know they're here for education and for the the betterment of society basically for us learning about the the universe around us and so they do say on their website that any findings they have they will make public as soon as they have time for themselves to analyze them 
So down the road, <laughs> when they do so, I hope that I can pop back in on the podcast and give everybody an update on what they found. <laughs> but until then, I hope that everyone found the coverage of this episode satisfying. And please do check my references to learn more, because there's a whole, like, especially if you're into astronomy and you know all the, the uh, terminology, there's a lot of more deep diving to do into this case. Uh, so please feel free to check out the references and read through it some more and decide for yourself what you think it is based on the information available. But it's definitely a case that I will be watching to see <laughs> what their findings are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like they've got a good foot going forward now and they have materials that they're able to actually experiment with and try to figure out where their origin is from. I'm kind of interested to see if there might be a new element that comes out of this because my little chemistry yeah. brain is like hmm, you gotta know there's gotta be more out there <laughs> right i thought that too because i mean that was one of the things i kept saying like even if it doesn't turn out to be extraterrestrial technology even if it is space rock like there could still be some big findings in that oh absolutely this is uh, at least as far as we know, this would be our first sample we have in the hand of something that came from outside of our solar system. And again, like I said, the composition of it is unlike anything we've seen in our solar system. So already we can see it's very different. So who's mm -hmm. to say there isn't a totally new element in there that we don't even know exists? <laughs> that would be really cool. <laughs> that would be really, really cool. But we only get one sample of it and then it's gone. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that... I'm sure is one of the reasons too why they're trucking back as much of that magnetic uh, dust as they can to just like let's see what we can get out of this because again like they're looking for the needle in the, the ocean in this case and they found it but they still only have so much to work with here and I mean this is the remains of this meteor that just busted and in the atmosphere and exploded mm -hmm. so I mean they were uh, they were hoping to find what they call the core so. Uh, if you imagine the big hunk of rock that I'm sure every astronomer probably dreams of finding. They were hoping to find the big hunk of rock. They did not find it. <laughs> but they at least got these much smaller pieces. Uh, and that is still valuable information in and of itself. Absolutely. Yeah. So. <laughs> Definitely stay tuned. I'm sure we will get some updates on this one in the future with more information and, and hopefully some really exciting information some really exciting science will come out of this and uh, we'll see what happens since <laughs> they're uh how, how do i put it they already seem like they're they're kind of up against a lot <laughs> they're already kind of have an uphill battle here with all the criticism and all the you know just the the challenge they took on how difficult it was and they were able to do this so i'm definitely curious to see what happens <laughs> i'm curious to see what happens too because like, I didn't put forth to them to be able to do this, and, like, they did. They've got it now. And it's like, oh, shit, that was from how many years ago? Right? That Although was my part of me. Part of me goes, where the fuck is the Malaysian flight that went bye-bye? <laughs> where, where is that? Can we use that same science to find that, maybe? Please? Because that scares me. Where the fuck is it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe something can be learned from this. I don't know. Yeah, because, I mean, um, 
I can't remember if it was the professor himself or somebody else, but one of my sources was talking about, like, if this meteorite had landed in, like, the Saharan desert, there's no way they'd find it now. The sands shifting so much would have covered it up. There would be no hope of recovering that. But I was thinking yeah. in the ocean, like... I mean, the currents in the ocean, like, I would figure it'd do the same thing. That's what I was thinking, yeah. I would expect, you know, and maybe not immediately, maybe not as quickly as, like, the mm-hmm. Saharan desert example, but still, it's been, what, about nine years or so since this meteorite hit the ocean? Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, like, it's been a that's, while. That's a good long while. Like, even if it doesn't shift the same as, like, the Sahara Desert does, like I was saying earlier, if it came in and it was still going a good trajectory like even going through something viscous like water it might slow it down a little bit but it might not slow it down completely so you're gonna have that impact on the ground anyway and then on top of that you've got currents coming through and fish and other things that are happening in that like area like there's got to be some type of like i don't know how to put it like disjointedness of where it was at like it's been dislodged or something else has moved around a little bit i'm surprised they were able to find it after such a long time i really am yeah i was really surprised too and i mean uh i had a how do i put it i guess i had a little bit of like a cheat sheet going in because i (laughs) discovered this case by first reading the article that was like oh my god they found the thing that we didn't think they'd find so i mean i at least knew going in like oh they found it but still like thinking about it i was like i never Mm would have guessed they would have found it and then when the first article i found was an older article well not that old i mean this expedition started what in the middle of june so not that long ago but still uh it was one of the first articles that said oh you know they found i think it was like five spherules um but in the end they had 50 of them and i was like wow that's a lot (laughs) like they were they seemed very excited just to have a few let alone 50 so i was like whoo they really pulled it together on that one but it does make me wonder like you were saying uh with the impact even going through the water it probably still had very high velocity makes me wonder is there a core out there and they just didn't find it because it's buried underneath the sediment like it just busted through the sediment and got covered up and the magnet couldn't pull it out it makes me wonder if there there is yeah. a bigger piece of the the space rock or whatever you want to call it that is in there somewhere and they just weren't able to retrieve it well even going that far it's like do they have another expedition plan to go back in the future and possibly recheck that marked location i would presume they would mark the location where they got all these sphere rolls from i yes. might be wrong <laughs> I might be wrong, but I'm presuming that they would, because that's what good scientists do. We mark things where they're at. Um, <laughs> I, re- I presume that they would. So do they have plans to go back in the future and possibly send in an excavation team that has more of like the technology to do the hands-on work rather than just using the magnet itself to kind of clear some of that debris away and see what else that they can find because there are underwater archaeological teams that do this so oh yeah for sure yeah i think as far as just 
the whole needle in the haystack thing, I think they were just like, you know what, I think we're just going to start with this. And as far as, like, looking for the, because they didn't know how big of particles they're going to find, as far as just finding these tiny, tiny particles, I think the magnet, well, obviously the magnet worked. But yeah, <laughs> with this idea, though, that potentially you have this core that's that's submerged down there, it's just buried, I think something like that would probably really benefit their cause of sending those professionals mm-hmm. down there to do some digging, try to find it now that they yeah. know like, okay, we can map the trajectory of it hit here and it went this far and they can probably get a better estimate of where that would be. If it is down there. I mean, again, it's not going to be perfect. I'm sure they'll still have their box of search area. They need to search, but still with this information where they can map the trajectory fairly well, I would imagine uh, that would definitely be, I think a, a great next step if they want even more material and see what else they can they can find so yeah it's so new that there definitely wasn't anything in any of the articles i read about them planning another expedition since it's less than a week since they just ended the last (laughs) expedition but i wouldn't be surprised i wouldn't be surprised at all if that is in the future down the road of trying to do another one see what else they can get absolutely well right (laughs) we may have some news come next week when we record again (laughs) yeah we'll see i'm gonna have to do some occasional googling to see what's going on with this and i won't give uh constant reports for every little post that pops up but yeah if we have some uh, a release of a, a paper or some findings or any big news i'll definitely be sure to update everybody (laughs) absolutely I actually need to go back and do that on like 20 cases so <laughs> see most of my cases i don't have to worry about that with but this one i was like oh now i gotta do what katie does and actually like look at watch this one <laughs> there's a couple that i have on my watch list and then there's other ones that i'm like i know that nothing's gonna come from this right away <laughs> yeah but yeah so something a little different today a little bit more uh news kind of reporting which is but hopefully y'all enjoyed it and uh learned something i definitely learned something because while i'm in the sciences i'm definitely not in astronomy or any sort of space sciences (laughs) definitely learned a lot for me for sure but yeah hope if you enjoyed the episode please rate us uh and Give us a review if I believe on Spotify you can review and YouTube you can leave us a comment. Definitely give us a shout out. Let us know what you think. We'd love that like button. That's your review on YouTube. (laughs) Hit the like button. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) If you hit the like button, that tells us you like us. (laughs) Yeah, and it also pushes it out into the algorithm a little bit more of like, oh, somebody liked this. So we'll we'll advise it to more people that watch things like this so yeah so we definitely appreciate it if you guys can do that because we do want to spread the word of haunting cases reach out to a greater audience and continue to grow so it definitely helps us a lot if you rate review us hit the like button whatever you got to do on the app you're (laughs) listening to us on we really appreciate it (laughs) absolutely All right, well, until next time, stay spooky. Bye. Thank you again for listening to Haunting Cases Podcast. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram 
at Haunting Cases Podcast and on Twitter at Haunting Cases. If you have a listener tale, story request, or any questions, email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So, what do you say, listeners? Listeners.